0: Live from the Moss Isley Cantina, it's Durrell Trains of Thought.
1: All right, well, welcome. It's been a while. Um, it has been a while. We had to take a break just because life kind of got in the way. Life's been kind of crazy lately. Yeah. Um, and this is episode 30. Yeah, we made it.
0: We made it yet again to another milestone.
1: Yay. Yay.
0: Next swap is... We're still alive. A prime number. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and with us today is uh,
1: our friend and contributor, Brian Scherschel. Hello. Welcome. I'm glad you uh, managed to make it... With us today to this hive of scum and villainy. If anyone shoots, uh, yeah, Greedo, Greedo shoots first. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going to mention. Was Greedo, where Greedo's
2: shirts shoots first, exactly.
1: So they say. So I, I've, they say. I've heard differently.
2: <laughs> and where Jabba shows up in places where he wasn't before.
0: But that's a good thing, right?
2: Yeah. Yes.
1: In a, in a strange new format.
0: More Jabba is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're, you're not used to this uh, whole ad-libbing thing I've, I've been drinking too much already <laughs> I, Well, I actually, before we came here I had to go get some Aunt Beru's blue milk stuff but <laughs> Oh, yeah <laughs> That stuff
1: never looked healthy No, it did not
2: Yeah, the, that blender did not yeah. look appetizing Tatooine at all Kool-Aid, I don't know <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And then before
0: that, I went to one of the Tuscan Raider cookouts Do not <laughs> Bad barbecue Bad barbecue The
2: Jawas make better food, i think The, the heard. Jawas
0: heard. do make better food <laughs> <laughs> all right let's, <laughs> let's move on nick <laughs> so um actually speaking of uh, jawas and dusk and raiders and whatever tonight day's uh well first we'll be doing story school oh. i almost led into it without yeah okay all right so, uh, speaking of Jawas and Tuscan Raiders and um, other aliens, um, well, today's uh, topic is supporting characters.
1: Which is totally what I think of when I think of aliens and weird creatures <laughs> and stuff.
0: Yeah, well, there's a supporting character for Star Wars, but you could have supporting characters like... Um, well, basically every story. Yeah, well I know, I was gonna to try to mention the actual supporting character. Oh, okay. Like such, uh, as? such as Thompson and Thompson from Tintin. Okay. Yeah, I just I just saw Tintin. So
1: To to be technical, let's let's is there I was wondering about this, is there a defining difference between a supporting character and say an ensemble? Like say Lord of the Rings has mm-hmm. got sort of an yeah. I mean you've got Frodo as the main character kinda, but you know, Aragorn, Gandalf are they main characters or are they supporting characters? Or is it more of just an ensemble yeah, or does it really apply?
0: Yeah, I, I I, mean, I suppose you could argue either way depending on your purpose. I would say they were more ensemble. They're, they have equal weight in the main plot. I think supporting characters are usually B-plot sort of mm-hmm.
1: stuff or, or foils, you know. They're more of a support for the main one than an actual yeah. having a long arc of yeah, their the, own.
0: Yeah, they're, they're, you okay. know, you could take them out and you could still have the plot, but it wouldn't be as fun.
2: Okay, <laughs> right. And then like like versus like supporting characters versus like a company of you know many people that all contribute to the story. It's kind of hard to make that distinction. like maybe Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, you maybe have more of an ensemble mm-hmm. company mm-hmm. thing going on, and then yet with other things, you can try to sort it out and say, well, that's genuinely a supporting character. Yeah.
0: If you get nominated for best supporting actor or actress, then you're a
1: supporting character. <laughs> well, even that, <laughs> even that is debatable sometimes cuz I mean like in the uh, True Grit, Haley Steinfeld was nominated for best supporting actress and people were like, "What? She's a main character." So, it They probably on... just wanted to get her an award or, I, uh,
0: I suppose nomination. she
1: she wasn't a uh, famous enough to be to get a lead nominee right off the bat, I guess.
0: So, I'm going to start off with this. This is my observation of supporting characters. It holds for mostly musicals, but it also goes into other things, is that the main characters in a musical are boring. <laughs> they have to hold the plot. Yeah. And the supporting characters is where all the fun happens. Well, they're usually
1: the more the comic relief. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, because
0: you have to have the love story hang on, you know, semi-serious people. Mm-hmm. But that's you know, but that just the plot's too simple then. So you have to throw in these goofballs. I I recently went to see the Broadway version of uh, Beauty and the Beast, which nice. is a great example of supporting characters everywhere. Yeah, um, you got all you got Cogsworth and Lumiere and Lafou and all these people who are there basically just to make it a, a fun movie because the plot by itself
1: as presented, is relatively straightforward. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess it's like the, the, the Muppets. Yeah. <laughs> i got to bring in a Muppet reference here. Um, everyone loves Kermit, but if you want to ask someone who your favorite Muppet is, some I mean, some people will still say Kermit, but it's usually with a degree of hesitation and be like, well... Kermit's kind of the obvious answer, but I really love the the sweetest chef, and he's like that random guy. New Zealand, you know, yeah. <laughs> throwing the boomerang fish or the hecklers. Or yeah, the hecklers. That, like, yeah, they love being able to say, "Oh, I love those those guys off on the sidelines." It's
0: kind of like the supporting character is like uh, spices in a
1: in a dish. It's like it yeah. gives it all the flavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, If you didn't have the supporting character, yeah, it'd just be a very it could be much more generic hero story. A, a lot of times, I mean,
0: the heroes aren't. They're not necessarily boring, but they have to be more the straight
1: and narrow, traditionally. I mean, there's ways, there's all kinds
0: of ways around that. But. Yeah, that's true.
1: So what are some roles that the supporting character... We talked a bit about the comic relief is one. Comic
0: relief is a big one for the more lighthearted. You know, you're a man comedy. There's always, like, the best friend who's, you know...
1: Or, like, we were just talking about before we started recording, um, Singing in the Rain, which I just saw. The main character's friend, the piano player, who is just hilarious, but he's, in some ways, he's more fun, because every time he's on the screen, you know, he's just gonna make a witty remark and do something crazy, like dance on the floor, like, while he's lying on the floor, or what. Mm -hmm. Well, since we're here at the Cantina, you know, you got C-3PO and RTD2,
0: who are half comedic and half... Right, their
2: characters are used for for specific
0: purposes, and,
2: like not out of convenience, but more as as an addition and as part of the group
1: that goes along in various places. Dude. And they, they they have a purpose to well, serve that. R2 is vital to the first movie. I mean, he's Very. he's got the star plans. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, R2 is the one who actually saves the main characters. As opposed to if they just had
2: the plans stored
1: on, like, a chip or something <laughs> and they just carried it around with them. And it's like,
2: oh, well, you have the plans now. Who has them? And that wouldn't be nearly as good as... Is
0: recorded in the droid, you see. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with a lot of personality. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the supporting characters give a sense of they expand the world too. And the droids are a perfect example of that. But in most, it wouldn't have to be a fantastical world. It just
1: expands your your points of view. Yeah, um, and besides just having yeah the different perspectives, sometimes they also are key in helping get exposition across. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of Watson's whole job. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he follows Sherlock around and and sees what he does. I mean, sometimes Holmes used him in plans. I mean, Watson was uh, a crack shot, so he used that sometimes. But generally speaking... Or just used him
0: like in uh,
1: *Hound of the Baskervilles to kind of, you know... Yeah, be the foil. And, the foil. And not
0: really tell, tell everyone else <laughs> what he was actually doing.
2: Right, and so the supporting character ends up being something that you get to bounce things off of right? yeah,
0: yeah yeah yeah. a lot of times it's a sounding board It's
2: yeah Dr. I mean, Watson is like a perfect sounding board
1: the main character comes to revelations through talking with him They're like because oh. otherwise the detective doesn't have anyone to say well you know this is the reason why this works and how I'm figuring this stuff out
0: well you know, it's always it's
1: almost much easier especially in well you can
0: get away with it le- more often books having just
1: one character in a scene but
0: normally in any sort of play or movie you want two people because you need someone to bounce stuff off to so have dialogue J. Mark Zazinski, you know, he always said that he, two people in a room he could write forever, but
1: hmm. multiple people in a room gets more confusing. Well, of course, you have to have someone the to monologue, too. <laughs> well, you have to have someone the to monologue, too.
2: <laughs> and so, like, what about somebody, like, we mentioned Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. What about Star Trek? Isn't, like, isn't spock one of the greatest sounding boards ever <laughs> that's true i mean he everybody bounces things off of him well, we he, always want to know how he reacts to things and well, I mean, a lot of him is reacting i would I would say almost more
1: than acting a, a raised eyebrow sometimes <laughs> yeah. all, and you just need him to
2: say something like
1: fascinating or <laughs> something like that and, and uh, well kirk would be nowhere without his supporting characters i mean mm-hmm. they, they do most of the work really he's just there kirk's just there for the fight scenes They'd <laughs>
2: almost be also sort of like um, yeah and the women sort of like picard and data. Yeah, that's Maybe true. as well. Mm-hmm. It's at least, in the, especially in the film versions of things. Yeah.
0: Because sometimes uh, in, the, in the show versions, supporting characters can kind of change depending on what episode you're in. Right? Yeah, if Very. an episode
1: is focused on its main or, like, Lost, you could say there's a horde of, of supporting characters. Or a horde of main characters. Or a horde of main <laughs> characters. I mean, like, Hurley yeah. seems like a supporting character until eventually he becomes actually really important. Mm-hmm. So, And I guess even Star Trek, you've sort of got a trifecta of, like, Kirk, Spock and McCoy kind of all seem like the three main characters. Yeah, and then Spock because he's Vulcan, he adds that
2: different perspective instead of just the two of them going off of their human emotions and instead we get to we get to see how Spock treats something and sometimes like with uh, like Star Trek 2 like he learns about the whole Genesis thing and how yeah. you know everybody's like, "Well, this could be a really terrible weapon and everything." And then Spock is like, well, you know, as a matter of fact, about everything, and and McCoy is like, oh my gosh, how can you say that? <laughs> Are you oh, you're, you know, he was like, you green blooded, inhuman, <laughs> and all he does is raise his eyebrow.
0: <laughs> uh. So, because as we're fighting, supporting characters is very uh, kind of subjective.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, and TV especially, it, it, like we said, it really depends a lot on the episode. Sometimes you trade hats for, okay, it's this episode, I'm the supporting character, this episode, you are. But no,
0: most times, unless you're writing a very complicated plot, you have one main plot. Sure. And then everyone else is kind of filling in gaps. Mm-hmm. And, and they play a really good role that way. I'll just throw in here, you know, we, we've talked about the Squire on here before. Yeah. There's like, you know, 13 supporting
1: characters. But it's very clear that Obit is the main person. And everyone else just kind of
0: gives their, I mean, they all they all kind of have different parts of the world they reveal to him. Mm. I guess. I mean, it's kind of set up like a mystery. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I, I, I just now thought that. It wasn't my plan. I mean, uh-huh. it's also an adventure, but I mean, some mm. of the, they each reveal different parts of the world. You got your thief, and then you have your... yeah, yeah. He- you know, the right. different aspects of, the. you know,
1: here's your magician, here's your, the two girls who are involved in all kinds of dealings. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. We've talked about how some, they're helping fill in the world, but also sometimes they're the ones who help push the protagonist into situations. Yes. Sometimes by getting themselves in trouble, like they have to go, res- you have to go rescue. Or your Rosencrantz
0: and Guildenstern and <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> like, oh,
0: Hamlet, no, we're your friend. Remember? <laughs> really? We really are. <laughs> I always supporting characters always remind me of foils because when we did it in Canterbury mm-hmm. it was always um which one was Hamlet's foil Fortinbras? Uh,
1: no. The one that he like his No one, no no, the... uh, Laertes. Laertes, yeah. Oh okay.
0: Because yeah. He doesn't kind of change, you know.
2: He's the static character. He's the static character, and he's changing.
0: And Mm -hmm. sometimes you're having supporting characters kind of... We learned the same thing in Huckleberry Finn, that Tom Sawyer is there at the beginning and at the end, and he hasn't really changed, and Mm -hmm. Huck's done all this stuff in the meantime.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: Um, That these supporting characters sometimes are not just sounding boards, but ways for the author to say, look, how much our main character has changed. You bring Mm -hmm. the supporting character back in who... Because sometimes supporting characters tend to be a little more one-note than your main character. Mm -hmm. Often. That they tend to have some sort of quirk or personality thing that defines them, and they don't necessarily change. Mm -hmm. Coming from, like,
2: my experience with Agatha Christie, that would be a good one, too, in that there's, like, Hercule Poirot, he has Captain Hastings, and then, like, Miss Marple. Miss Marple had Mr. Stringer, where it was that static character that you got to go through with everyone, and... Sometimes that character is something that you can, like, the viewer can relate to as a guide, but sometimes, like, in Christy's case, it's, like, a genuine sidekick thing going on. And sometimes in films, though, it's good to have a character that can be very related to the audience, so That and that's the way that you learn about the world of the story, mm-hmm. and is through, like, a static character who acts as, like, a guide through things and doesn't necessarily change, but instead reacts to things as the viewer kind of would
0: yeah which they do i you had mentioned hurley at lost he had always kind of played the role of acting like the audience would act like yeah. wait a second mm-hmm. we didn't know anything about that you yeah. know because referencing you, back to the future when they're time traveling yeah, yeah and that and that's not the only example just you know we have to bring it up occasionally here on the podcast <laughs> but you know i think that's a good point that sporting characters
1: often are the channels to ask those basic questions. Yeah, because if, if you don't address the questions that the audience has, then they're going to feel frustrated. Like, it, or it could even feel like a plot hole if you don't address something that's like, why don't you just do this and I'll take care of it? Well, we can't because, and the supporting character usually is the one who brings that up. Mm-hmm. Right, and then if you're, if you're
2: looking at a story where things happen and it's like, well, just because. And it's like, <laughs> well, you don't want to have just because as the answer for why things happen. You have to kind now of bring that logical something in.
0: Unless hey, you're Lewis Carroll. yeah yeah then you're off the rails yeah completely pretty much
1: now we've been talking about supporting characters a lot in as they support helping the main characters sometimes i think they're not always they can be antagonistic to the main characters like Going back to Greedo, in a sense. <laughs> he's he's very much a minor villain, sort of a supporting character. But, I mean, really, his appearance in the first Star Wars doesn't really have a lot, much relevance to the main plot, you know, the whole Death Star thing. It's really more just to kind of establish Han Solo. This bounty hunter, tough guy that people are out to get him. So, that gives him an excuse to, to leave toward the end of the movie. Right, is to
2: develop other characters more fully and give them a, a kind of depth. Mm-hmm. And so we learn about, like, what Han's kind of value system is, and, like, then we are able to flesh out his character more.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes you've got other antagonistic ones, like, well, I mean, the, the, they're not the main one, but they just show up to cause problems. Yeah. It often is to establish how tough a hero is at the beginning, <laughs> that he just kind of mops the four of them, and then they don't, you know, see him again in the movie.
2: Boba Fett, maybe, uh, might be
1: perhaps. a possible one. I suppose you could say that, he, He's such the the strong silent type. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was more of like an outlier. Yeah, like as far as he provides a f- grab hold of. People have kind of elevated him to a major villain status, but really in the movies he is pretty minor. Yeah, pretty, yeah. He just kind of shows up and does stuff.
0: I think this. Uh, I I think a creator though, from all the things we're talking about, needs one of the best things to do for a supporting character is make him or her memorable in some way mm-hmm. because. Honestly, sometimes those are the characters people remember or love best. Are all the this random guy who showed up just was a goofball? You know, I mean, sometimes because of comic relief. But I think because they're supporting, because they're not necessarily carrying the weight of the plot, you can give them some sort of flair. And I think that's something you want to do. Give them some sort of shorthand. Yeah, that makes it easy to. Right. I know a lot of my characters, Trin Fred. Fred minor characters have some sort of shorthand that kind of. Identify them, you know, like the way you, they talk
1: or the way. Yeah, they, I was gonna say there's that one guy with a goofy accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. In in the Squire, yeah,
0: and I think and I think you can have a lot of fun doing that. If you haven't, or the trailer trilogy, you know, people like, uh, <laughs> like Adassa
1: okay, or, yeah. uh,
0: or, or, the narrators, mm-hmm. they're
1: just there. They don't need to be there for the actual plot. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy in the third movie has sort of a, a like a little mini arc. I yeah. think having your, having a little mini arc for your supporting characters, I think is a neat thing too, because I mean, the one note thing is, is very useful, but sometimes if they have a little, like their own little story, mm-hmm. then that's adds another layer. To Especially it. if it's a novel. You need, they need to have some sort of yeah. movement normally. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you have more time. Dickens yeah. is pretty good at that. Dickens, mm-hmm. is, that's actually a really good... He's great at supporting characters. I
2: remember <laughs> from hard times, the teacher who <laughs> was all about, you know, there was no imagination yeah. allowed. Yeah. And he his character was really well-developed uh-huh. in his, how he reacted to things and mm-hmm. how he just laid it out about this kind of world that that dickens creates and in... Bounderby. <Bee>. Bounderby,
0: Bounder is... the great oh character. yeah he is he's always blustering and saying how awesome
1: he built himself
0: up for uh. his bootstraps
1: and <laughs> i remember david copperfield i don't remember as much from that book as i would like but there was one character who was really well known for writing these really lengthy letters like elaborate and to the point where like when he's he gets this big scene where he gets to do this denama where he denounces someone he actually does it by reading a letter out loud and <laughs> oh Tale Two Cities
0: Jerry Cruncher is one of the oh. most awesome supporting characters of all time He he's always beating his wife and t- telling her stop flopping down she's praying stop flopping down and he gets he's a, he's a grave digger he has this whole scene where he's imagining this coffin's following him and <laughs> I mean if you want to make good characters read some Dickens yeah <laughs> Or uh, the, what's the, what's his name from Oliver
1: Twist, the guy that teaches Oliver? Oh, Dodger? Dodger, mm-hmm. the yeah. artful Dodger. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a classic. <laughs> Plus he has a, that really cool Billy, Billy Zane song. No, that's yeah, Oliver and company, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: but yeah, Dickens knew how to do his supporting characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then some, some authors have a lot of characters that are of equal weight, which you can't do quite supporting. You got... Dostoevsky does it. I I throw
1: him here. Yeah, I was I, was. I had a feeling he was coming. Up. I,
0: I thought. Well, since we're
1: talking about epic
0: novels, I might as well pull him in here. And there's some support, but so many people. He plays the themes off so many different characters that it's really. That's it, that made me more of an ensemble. It's sort more thing. of a yeah. He he does it differently. What about Les Miz? Would you say that pro- mm. is similar? I see the problem. The book's so massive. That everyone at some point is a main character. Okay, <laughs> and it seems like almost doesn't everybody
2: change practically? Yeah, I mean, a lot it, of people change over time.
0: When you get the like with Victor Hugo and Dostoevsky uh. and probably Tolstoy, mm. everyone is moving
1: all the time, mm-hmm. and that
0: it's such an epic thing that. Supporting character is not quite the right term for any of them..: okay.
1: mm-hmm. Well, and those, a lot of those novels are serialized too, so that's sort of like your ongoing TV show, where well, that's true. where yeah. everyone gets their chance to be in the limelight. And, so, and sometimes the entire purpose of the novel is to kind of move the theme through
0: all 10 characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so the more classic or uh, heavy novels tend to have maybe use a supporting character less than the more, uh, than the more visual media. Or mm. or the more genre media.
1: Okay. I mean genre stories seem you to know, have a lot more supporting characters because it's more focused, I guess. Yeah, well and you wanna have more people to help explain where you're at in this yeah. in the strange yeah. new world. Yeah, yeah.
2: The, the stranger the world, the more you wanna try to flesh it out and, and have it explained by how characters act and how they react to things. And and especially like the whole purpose of like having a guide especially, too, is, yeah, is to, exactly. is to a, bring us through.
1: a yeah, mentor who and, dies at some mm-hmm, point and... Mm-hmm. and Yeah, they're often there just to kind of help highlight the danger of the situation. That's where you get your red shirts, basically. <laughs> <laughs> your red shirt <jeans>. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Then you have your supporting characters. They just to die at the beginning of the episode, or, yeah. or,
0: you know, you're the monster of the week or the criminal of the mm-hmm. week sort of well, thing. Well, like,
1: I was thinking Doctor Who. You've got your your characters who, uh, they just got died at the outset, and then there's ones who actually... From the world who wind up working with the doctor, so you actually care about the danger that's at the you know the place that they're at because you you kind of know the doctor and his companion are usually going to get through okay, yeah. but you have got to have some people. Unless it's some, in the finale, some yeah, unless it's, the, <laughs> unless it's the end of the season, but you got to have some natives that uh, you grow to become concerned for. Yeah, in TV supporting act, I mean every
0: episode, anything episodic, you always have your supporting actors who are or characters who are like. I'm here for this episode, yeah. so yeah, you care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's some sort of, you know, very strange episode where it's just your two main characters stuck somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Which
1: occasionally you see those, and they're they're neat, but they're yep. rare. Yeah.
2: Another supporting character I sort of thought of the way that it was like it sort of gets integrated into the story later would be Star Trek Voyager with the seven of nine character. Oh yeah. Because it hmm. like you start out where, you know, you literally take somebody out of the board yeah. and then re you know sort of reanimate the human aspects of it and you end up creating a character that lasts like many episodes and actually and, become quite
0: popular yes
2: and it, yeah it becomes an important character even uh mm-hmm. over time and yeah very and very popular yes
0: well that's always kind of interesting as a writer to take a, a supporting character who might be more kind of just a single note sort of idea and then draw a personality out mm-hmm. of
1: it. Mm-hmm. And that's always really cool when you've got a character that kind of takes on a life of its own because the writer really enjoys doing it and the fans really enjoy it. And sometimes you can say that for a recurring character, like uh, if we're talking Star Trek, Q mm-hmm. is a great example of a character that they probably, I don't know how much they meant to keep him on, but he just kind of kept reappearing because yeah. people really liked him. Mm-hmm. So so we've right. talked about a lot of supporting character yeah, stuff. Yeah, And I, I
0: think they add a ton. I mean, doing a good one adds a ton to your story. I mean, everyone loved Watson. I mean, you don't yeah. read Sherlock Holmes for Watson, but it'd be much less without him.
1: Yeah, very true. I And mean, I think
0: that's the way a short supporting character should work.
1: If, it, if Sherlock Holmes was just narrating his own adventures, he'd come across <laughs> as even more of a... Arrogant. Uh, more more arrogant than he already does. <laughs> <laughs> but it's more like, hey, look at my friend. He's really cool.
0: Or like, I mean, and the the BBC version shows that perfect, That yeah. you know. I mean, it was just him. You almost couldn't identify it very well. It'd still be fun, but it's nice to have um, Watson kind of, they're just like rolling his eyes, like, really?
1: <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, pretty much. So Pretty much. So, yeah, I like I like the term you used earlier. They're a good spice to your story. And the more memorable, the better. Yeah, because you could make a course with just a hero, but it's not as good. <laughs> not not the same thing. No, kind of blind. Okay.
0: All right. Awesome. So that was story school. And we'll go into our soundtrack. Our soundtrack today, um, it is from a remix of Megman X5. It's called "Put your Guns Ga- <laughs> Put Ya Guns On." You're not Homestar Runner. Anyway. I'm not Homestar Runner. Put your guns on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> remixed by Diggy Dis. It's uh, they released a, a remix album of all Mega Man X music. And this is a remix of uh Zero a, st- a Zero Stage which would be uh, one of Mega Man's supporting characters
1: Zero. Now Mega Man X that's like a series of Mega Man games that came after the regularly like, Yeah, it's ones. like 100
0: years after or something mm-hmm. like that. Oh, okay. I played the first one. Okay. Um, yeah,
2: I got to the first two I think. But yeah, it didn't end up uh, being like a series. It, kind of thing.
0: Up, yeah. There's eight of them at least I uh-huh. think. Um, oh, okay. Our friend Nathan would know a lot more about it than I do. Obviously. But um, Zero was a supporting character who grew into a more and more major, I think he's a playable, main playable character in some of the games. But Mm. this is a remix of one of his stages. Um, It's very, uh, to quote DJ Pretzel, goodness the funk. So it is quite entertaining. Enjoy Welcome back. Very groovy song. That was a very, very nice song. And we'll go to our next uh, section, cinema selections with Brian Churchill. Um, today we are decided to. Well, we didn't really. Brian suggested we do. Lost the her Lost Horizon. Uh, Lost Horizon. Lost Horizon, which we uh actually managed to fit in while you guys were listening to the soundtrack.
1: Yes, the entire two-hour movie we <laughs> squeeze. Time must work differently here in Moss Isley. I think
0: it does. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was really nice of them to screen it for us. You know, the band stopped playing and, and they, they
0: did a soundtrack for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. (laughs) They were were in the other room while we were watching the movie. We only had to break up a few fistfights in the meantime, but we got through it. Yeah,
2: somebody's arm got chopped off by a lightsaber, um, and that was ugly. It happens. But,
1: But, um, yeah, Lost Horizons. Very interesting movie. Brian, why don't you uh, give us a little info about it?
2: It's Lost Horizon from 1937. It is based on a novel of the same name, and... It was uh, directed by Frank Capra, who mostly does um, sort of uh, comedy, kind of light, lighter things.
1: More Americana uh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I'd seen like three Frank Capra movies before this one, including It's a Wonderful Life, of course, um, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But after none... this one. Oh, that came yeah. after bit. But yeah, none of the ones I'd seen before were quite like this one.
2: No, it's really um, an original movie. Uh, he was chosen to direct it by the studio, and he, uh, after reading it through and everything, he was really fascinated by by what
0: was there. So the, mm-hmm. the basic premise is Robert Conway,
1: who's a, a diplomat, diplomat in Bra- China. Yeah, British diplomat in China.
0: They're escaping from some sort of insurrection in China with a couple other um, random Westerners, random, random Westerners, and. The Plane ends up being kind of hijacked.
1: Very Temple of Doom. Very Temple
0: of Doom kind of hijacking. And they end up in Shangri-La. And then all the kind of responses and... Interesting. Ideas related to...
1: Yeah, a nice movie with uh, the supporting characters to talk about, because there's some really good actors in this.
2: Yeah, there are. Um, some of the supporting characters, one is a paleontologist, and he is played by Ever- the actor Ever- Edward Everett Horton. He is a character actor who really excelled in the kind of nervous Nelly kind of personality.
1: Well, how could I know that a wall was going to break out right over my head? Right over my
0: head. Oh my word. I I tell you, those Chinese were pouncing on me from every direction. I had to get into these ridiculous
1: clothes in order to escape. Where were you hiding? Hiding? Oh, no, no, no. Hunting. I was in the interior, hunting fossils.
2: He was frequently in in Frank Capra's movies in, in one place or another. Some of the stuff that he did included, uh, he actually did some voices for some of the Rocky and Bullwinkle
1: characters. I thought I heard Mr. Peabody in there. <laughs> yes.
2: And he was one of those people who, was, he was also in a lot of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies as well. But he was known as as the guy who could say, oh dear, and you, you would really think it was like the world ending. And, and that was his, his talent. And he's one of the people who's uh, taken uh, when everybody else is kidnapped on the plane and he excels in in that kind of personality and he really is able to show it through and we're able to see kind of his reactions to all the really different strange in his in his terms mysterious kind of things that are happening in shangri-la
1: mr conway i don't like this place it's too mysterious
2: and eventually his character does change in respect to the experience that he has there i think pretty much all the characters change as they react Um, Another one uh, that's really big is Thomas Mitchell. He was in Gone with the Wind, It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, he was also a Frank Capra actor. He was also used by John Ford sometimes. And he was a really well-known, versatile character actor. He plays um, Barney, who was originally a plumber and then head of his own um, company, as we find out later. He also reacts very interestingly to it in in that he, at one point, gets it, sort of. He understands what's going on.
1: Um, yeah, he's pretty satisfied with the whole experience pretty much from the get-go. Mm-hmm.
2: Probably because he's escaping something on <laughs> his own himself. <laughs> That's true. Another actor that we have is uh, John Howard, who he plays the brother. He plays uh, George Conway, uh, who is the brother of Robert Conway. And he ends up as one of those guys who wants to be in the thick of it. He wants to be in reality as he sees it, and instead he is pretty much disturbed by everything there. He's one of those people who he can't have, like, an absence of struggle. Like, without struggle, he pretty much can find almost no purpose, and he is really taken away by Shangri-La, and he doesn't like it, even. And he ends up melding, sort of, with one of the other personalities who's there in Shangri-La, Maria, who uh, also sort of views Shangri-La as a prison, and there's that dichotomy that's presented in the movie between people who who definitely would want to stay in a place like Shangri-La and people who can't stand it. And there's that sort of struggle there.
1: Yeah, that brother is a very interesting character from the audience's perspective. Because, I mean, I think we're all kind of trained to be distrustful of utopias. Because, I mean, at least personally by my beliefs, I don't think a utopia is possible on earth. And especially American society, we're very cynical about that sort of thing. But at the same time, the brother is not really a very likable character throughout most of the movie. (laughs) I mean, he is just so intense on getting out of there and not paying any attention at all to the culture that they're surrounded by that he's really quite a irritating character. And yet Mm -hmm. at the same time, like if I was actually like you know, looking at their philosophy and stuff it'd be like, yeah, this guy, the brother is actually more rational than the rest of what's going on here
2: George! George!
1: George, you're behaving like a child you haven't opened your mouth for two weeks well, I don't see that there's anything to say
0: and it was interesting because the whole idea of the Shangri-La, they have this kind of peaceful society
1: very brotherly love very
0: brotherly love, and they, they want to kind of spread it throughout the rest of the earth eventually and, and then you have the brother who basically won't take it yeah. Which kind of throws a wrench in their whole system in some ways.
1: <laughs> like it doesn't work as it doesn't, well as they think. It
0: does, well, yeah, it doesn't work. I mean, it works with people who are already, who buy into it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which uh. is kind of, the, which really is kind of the whole flaw with their systems. It works. Yeah, brotherly love is great if everyone would do that. But I don't think that's really part of human nature. And talk about no, writing... it pretty much defies human nature in, in many different ways. <laughs> and Brian, yeah.
0: you were saying that you know he, he kind of can't live in a world without struggle. It's interesting that after the first after the first act, which is what like 20, 30 minutes, mm-hmm. most of the movie is a plot without about about giving up struggle, which is a different way of going about. There's a really plot.
1: yeah. There's really not much conflict going on. I mean, when they first get to Shangri-La, there's kind of this oh, what is going on? The, the, mm-hmm. Are they keeping us prisoner here? But for the most part, you come to accept that they are who they say they are. And then yeah, there's it's not really like it's a conflict that's pushing it forward. It's more like just a passage of time.
0: And like a like a like an internal acceptance. I should have told you it is quite common here to live to a very ripe old age.
2: Uh, climate, uh, diet, uh, mountain water, you might say. But we like to believe it is the absence of struggle in the way we live. In
0: your countries, on the other hand, how often do you hear the expression he worried himself to death or this thing or that killed him? Well, very often. And very true. Your lives are therefore, as a rule, shorter, not so much by natural death as by indirect suicide. Mm-hmm. And also, all, kind of the audience kind of... Drawn further and further, and you know, they spent a long time kind of building this society up.
1: Yeah, they really
0: uh, did. And, and it kind of works that way.
2: Yeah, and the head of the, of the society, uh, Father Peril. He looks a lot uh, like Yoda. Yeah, he does. There's some Yoda <laughs> thing going on there.
0: Especially just, with even the, that even the cane, cane that he has. He had the cane, uh, he had the fuzzy hair on uh, the head. Mm-hmm. And the... Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Very. I didn't
0: think of it that way, but I, I can see <laughs> well, it, we'll now. Talking it's it's start, it. We're here most easily, so my. It's on mine. You yeah. know, uh you guys are talking about the horton guy and suddenly i'm thinking
2: Mm -hmm. c-3po oh oh
0: dear yes (laughs) yes i thought c-3po as well
2: um interestingly that wasn't like c-3po wasn't even invented to be that kind of character initially because he used to like they initially thought he was going to talk like a used car salesman (laughs) which that's definitely not him no Um, no. but instead i I like Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like Ever- Everett, Everett Horton yeah, a, a whole lot character. in this movie, um, yeah. but a lot of it is the passage of time and, and how the characters react to it and how they are able to perceive their new reality. For instance, like Barney and um, Love it, who's played by Horton. Barney and Lovett, at first they're, they're quite skeptical, and then over the passage of time they're like, well, maybe we can do things here that, that we did on Earth, too, but only here, you know, we don't have to worry about so many other things in our lives.
1: <laughs> I like how he said, as, as we did on Earth, because <laughs> when you go to of sharing your it does really feel like yeah. you're in some other place. Mm-hmm.
2: It really is. It's very far removed.
1: But yeah, the supporting characters really all bring other,
0: because your main character, it, he believes it instantly. Yeah, I mean Conway he is, accepts
2: it because yeah, I mean Conway's, Conway's... a perfect character in a way because yeah. of the way that he's always mired in these foreign affairs and all of these things where, as, as, as the place they're escaping, uh, China, it was either, it was the conflict that was going on there was either some kind of internal struggle or possibly the Japanese invasion because they were in Manchuria by this time. And so it was possibly, I would say Japan maybe, but uh, he is constantly weighted down by diplomacy and mm. a kind of helplessness. And most people don't know it, but he himself thinks that his life Almost has no meaning, yeah. even though he's going to be the foreign secretary of, of Britain.
0: It's interesting because he is he's a very passive hero. I mm-hmm. mean, when he gets to Shren La, he's basically just like, "I belong here. I'm not yeah. worried." But he's the first one to give up, basically. Yeah,
2: or, he's, or he Or he's the very first one who gets it like immediately. Yeah, in that he's in that. Some of the characters, even like Chang and and some of the other ones, tell him, "Well, isn't this what you dreamed yeah. about? Yeah, maybe you know this is what you." Did want and he of course obviously I think when he right when he sees it he's familiar to it yeah. and he he gets about how the society works.
1: Well, he is a very extreme idealist, and very. like you get that sense on the plane, like right when they are escaping, that he had all these great ideas, but reality kind of came crashing down, and he would really love to work outside of it, but his. He has such a strong moral center, but he can't help but work within the system, even though he really despises
0: it. You know what's interesting that that scene at the beginning that kind of establishes his character. He mentions like, "I would do all that, but I won't be. I'll just go along." It's interesting because at the end, he has another choice: whether he's going to do what he what he thinks he should, or just go along. And he kind of hasn't changed.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. Mm-hmm. He in this he's sort of a static character, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, almost almost everyone else changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't change until the last his bro- five minutes.
1: His brother doesn't really until, like, well, maybe the very end.
0: Well, that's true, yeah. Like, when he realizes... But, I don't, but see, I always figured the brother was more of a foil against him. Man. Yeah, his brother's like, okay, here's the opposite of... Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense.
2: Yeah, the two brothers are, like, very, very opposite uh, characters.
0: And everyone else is kind of in somewhere along the spectrum. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and what do you make
2: of of the of the fact that this movie was made in thirty six, thirty seven, only that, two years before the war? I, know, I
0: thought that was very interesting because um. there's for if you haven't seen it, uh, which probably haven't, uh, there's a whole concept that Shangri La is built to hold all the treasures of, like intellectual treasures and cultural treasures, yeah, you know,
2: like books, art, music
0: of the world, yeah. so that when when humans basically kill each other, that then they it can be like a place of re- rebirth mm. and this was written before world war
1: ii well before yeah full scale of it mm-hmm. and which is very interesting because the the guru guy said the high lama actually says at some point it came to me in a vision long long ago
2: i saw all the nations strengthening not in wisdom but in the vulgar passions and the will to destroy I saw the machine power multiplying until a single weaponed man might match a
0: whole army.
2: I foresaw a time when man,
1: exulting in the technique of murder, would rage so hotly over the world that every book, every treasure, would be doomed to destruction. Well, what does that make us think of? I mean, well, it, yeah, this
2: is only, uh, I believe, eight years before the atom bomb was a reality.
0: You know, and it's interesting because it, it felt like it could have been written after the atom bomb. It,
2: it really like did. Not,
0: yeah. Like one of those 50, 60 mm-hmm. movies.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was rather prescient about how it, yeah. it, it viewed it, the trend of, of weaponization and mechanized war. You know and, when and the book war.
0: was written? Uh, I don't
2: know. Think it would it have, have been up. before um, that, even.
0: Maybe not yeah. much before
2: that. Um, this might have actually been possibly written after the facts of World War I. Probably. There, a lot of yeah. Ro- like World mm, War II was yeah. probably one of the most predictable wars, uh, <laughs> well. very much so. And some of the movie, especially with the speech that the High Lama gives, you noticed how some of it was put into stills because there was only the audio that was available. Oh, yeah, why better, do you suppose that was?
1: You better explain why only audio was available. You said yeah, this movie the- was originally like six hours long
2: well it was six hours long before it was recut and then uh after it was recut and redone it was about 137 minutes uh so about an hour, two hours 17 minutes and then over time it was about what did it say 20 plus minutes were were cut out over time as the movie was shown so, we are left with the audio was found and, and pieced together, and uh, yet some of the film was was not survivable, and so instead there were, put, there were stills that were put in. But there were some stills that were interspersed during uh, the High Lama's speech. So in other words, they had to kind of put that audio back together again. Why do you suppose the audio was cut out in the first place? Look at the world today. Is there anything more pitiful? What madness there is. What blindness. What unintelligent leadership. A scurrying mass of bewildered humanity crashing headlong against each other. Propelled by an orgy of greed and brutality. And I think part of that was cut because I mean parts of it were cut out because of the film's pacifist message. And that was cut out as a result of a bias against that pacifist message. Mm. Full disclosure: I read something about that, <laughs> but it's it makes complete sense, it does make sense as to what cut yeah. as to what parts were cut out. And, and so, be, because I believe possibly during the war when the this war was City, shown, yeah. then we they might you know they quote unquote <laughs> might not have wanted the audience to. Hear that pacifist of a message,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, even though the director Capra probably very much agreed with those sentiments.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, and um, so, some of the other cuts I can kind of imagine. I think it was not uncommon for theaters at the time to trim things, because mm-hmm. movie theaters like having that narrow two-hour thing, so they can fit in more screenings of uh-huh. things. Especially since I don't know how successful was this thing. If it wasn't one of the most successful films, they would have had no qualms of cutting it on their mm.
2: own. Oh yeah, I mean, maybe it's just some of the stuff that gets cut even as cut even as successful as some movies are. But uh, <laughs> this was uh, a relatively successful film. It's routinely shown from what from what I understood. Okay. Uh, not only because it's a Cabra film, but because of, of the size of the production and how monumental the the film's actual production was, because they did put a lot of money into it, oh, like that's, the sets. That's uh, very clear. A lot, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of pr- high production quality in it, and uh, I think because some people wanted that certain parts of the message to be cut out, parts of that were gone, and then some other things were just for expediency. But yeah. uh, but the speech itself in the middle there, that's definitely yeah, that uh, makes sense. Yeah. And I I think the message is still really profound, the way that that the High Lama discusses these kinds of issues. Because he viewed, what did he say, he had a vision, a really graphic vision of of what would happen in, like, worldwide conflict and all the destructiveness and all the bad qualities of humanity all come together. And he viewed Shangri-La as a place that would be a shelter, essentially, from all of these really evil forces.
0: I mean, the way it's set up is really around a philosophy. It's really a philosophic movie. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. I mean, more than a uh, got the... than, than a, con- than a conflict-oriented movie, like most movies are. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, really...
2: it's even built as an adventure flick. I mean, it's an adventure film, but yeah. it, it's a very different kind uh, of adventure yeah. film. And I think possibly people didn't really know, you know this didn't really fit into all, you know, a neat
0: category. I, I, could, I could feel, I could feel, you know, seeing that at the beginning it was based on the book, you could feel with the sort of book
1: it would have been. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of, you can see how it could have influenced things that came after it. I mean, we talked about Indiana Jones and, and Star Wars, um echoes that yeah. seem like. but funnily enough one movie that like when they were arriving at shangri la and they were kind of explaining their whole philosophy one movie that it made me think of and you're gonna laugh when i say <laughs> this but one movie made me think of was this island earth mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's bizarre but yeah you've got this alien race that they go they take these humans there it's like hey we think you're smart we're gonna go show you our civilization mm-hmm. and stuff they go in a very different direction, with it, <laughs> and much in chees- much cheesier. But you can mm-hmm. kind of see that sort of that type of adventure movie where you go to see in a, a strange new civilization sort
2: of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, it, this is a really good point. And remember, they sought out Conway. That's the interesting part. Another interesting part is Jacob that Jacob
1: called him to the
0: island.
2: Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Sandra. What she read his books, yep, read and his she book. and she said she found she found a man with not very much life in him and, and purpose in him. And she knew that, basically, that Shangri-La was the answer. And mm-hmm. then that they actually went out and, and found him and mm-hmm. and brought him there. And it's probably because the High Lama thought that he was the type of personality to be in charge of it. Which is really amazing.
0: I just have to also mention here that, I won't spoil it, but I, I really enjoyed the, the direction it took at the very end. Which was different than I was, mm-hmm. threw a little wrench into it. Yeah, and I really wasn't expecting a wrench at that point.
1: It was a little unclear how it was going to end exactly. Yeah. like you said, there wasn't really any conflict in the middle of the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so uh, I would have to agree that the, the scene with between Ronald Coleman's character and the, his brother really set up the climax very nicely. Yeah,
2: yeah. and and you and, had to you had to answer that kind of conflict finally somehow between the two brothers and their points of view it's are Um, you going to be man of science or man
1: of faith
0: yeah exactly you know are you man or a muppet yeah and (laughs) the the brother
2: the brother kind of thought i kind of thought that he was like this almost sort of he
0: reminds me of uh, uh johnny storm is that that's the name from fantastic four i don't know sounds right yeah it reminds me of him from the early and this is sort of
2: like more. modern view of things, and it's kind of come on. Reality uh, is this. Yeah, you don't we, want we to, must move on. We, and... Progress, always yeah, progress. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: There, there, there's a parts of this. It's parts that don't work, but parts that give me influ- influence. of stuff like uh, Out of Silent Planet, sort of, just bits okay, and pieces, yeah. or, or you know, some of it has the overlap. Since Sing- Shangri La has this half utopian heaven feel. Mm-hmm. Of some of the ways C.S. Lewis would talk about people leaving or not accepting, right? Great, just little hints of that great divorce and the end of uh, Last Battle and stuff like that.
1: That's mm. a very interesting, yeah, comparison. I was thinking of it more in terms of, it, like, it's very, this is a very humanist vision of people are basically and Well, well and it, is, and it is, yeah, I don't agree
0: with that part of it, but it's interesting, at least the question of whether you accept Utopia, I right. guess. Mm-hmm in what mm-hmm. format it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remind um, me of some of that. Lewis, the, how he presents it sometimes.
2: Yeah, this film is really good source material. You can tell this is source material for like other filmmakers and and other story writers. Um, well, I was saying,
0: was I on the podcast? I was talking about the third Mummy movie. It felt like bits of. <laughs> I think you mentioned it right before. Yeah. Okay. It. it uh, yeah, there
2: are bits of Lucas and Spielberg, and it just yeah, yeah all
0: kinds. I mean, it didn't have Yeti like the Mummy did. <laughs> <but>. <laughs>
2: And I think maybe like there's a connection to even Terry Gilliam's films and because in well, the way that, <laughs> yeah, in the way that Terry Gilliam, like his movies were all about like the escape from reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and I think this really kind of encapsulate like historically, if you look at American history, world history, like a lot of this sort of encapsulates the desire to, I mean, I think a lot of people in the interwar period were pretty well not all that happy with, like, modernity and the kind of future that it seemed to bring. Like, there's, like, that really kind of ugly side of
0: I guess it really works, things. and I hadn't thought of this, but that it opens with conflict. I mean, it opens with international problems. Yeah, that's true.
2: Yeah and, and how he Conway talks about how you know oh we saved 90 white people from this <laughs> conflict you know forget about the 10,000 people who got annihilated <laughs> in this conflict the 10,000 natives yeah and he full well knows the kind of the kind of despair about about what modernity had brought yeah. people
1: up to that point that was something i thought was interesting that he used that term white people as opposed to Americans or British yeah. like Westerners, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although he
2: did use a, the Chang, I believe, uses the term Westerners. Okay, it's yeah, like the, you true. know, it's funny how you Westerners always view things like this. Yeah,
1: so, yeah. Some very. Uh, it, it feels like it could be a product of the time, but it also feels outside of that. It mm-hmm. has a certain timelessness to
2: it. Yes, yeah, it does.
0: And, and yeah, and just to wrap up one more time in connection with our supporting characters. They really are. We've talked various ways you can use them, but this one's really to analyze different views of this points of view of the the idea the author is going for
1: that's mm-hmm.
2: true yeah the supporting characters all they they give us all a different viewpoint and, uh, about how they view like the superiority or not superiority of this utopian society and
0: it's interesting the brothers obviously are on the far extremes and then you have the, um, the other two guys are kind of like mini versions of the brothers mm-hmm.
1: you know they're <laughs> like they're
0: they're not as far as part, and they're not as they're, mm-hmm. they're like mirrors in some ways they're yeah. foils i guess the, each pair of them's foil and then there's this, there's this lady in there that could have had a plot line and didn't so I don't yeah know she probably happened.
2: did like at, at some point I mean a lot of that when stuff is cut like I I, I buy automatic automatically I just blame the studio <laughs> it is it, just you know the studio gets to come in and decides to say oh well that's interesting and that's not and it's like well okay but and the but the character of um, the one the character that we were talking about is um, Gloria because she she starts out at the movie where she's very ill and they've given her six months to live and we can Suit. I think she we could pretty very, well. Like suit. giving up on living. Sort yeah. of Idea. Yeah. And she, she. Yeah. She didn't feel good at all. And then we. I think it's safe to assume that. Her, yeah. Her condition is mm-hmm. probably very well, very much reversed the by the environment. Worked. Yeah.
1: <laughs> do you? And this may be a faulty interpretation, but do you, did you get the impression that she might have been a prostitute at some point? I. I did. I thought that was a possibility. Maybe.
0: I, I had that once or twice. I Had that.
1: Cause that signal, but I, I never got much of it. I was just uh, curious because she seemed very bitter at the beginning, and she mm-hmm. talked about like the others about them being more. Yeah, high yeah and, she, and her, yeah, her dress was yeah. all kind
0: of torn up. I yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. And you know, and then it was a big deal when she didn't have makeup on.
2: She she I think one thing was that she had like a very like a life that was really full of struggle, and even more than she thought anybody else in that plane could even you know dare to compete it, with. It would right. been interesting. And so to that yeah, probably a very tough life. If, and if, so,
1: if that mm-hmm. was the case, that might have been another thing that might they might have cut it out because uh-huh. they thought it was a little too inappropriate, know. quote yeah. unquote. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, but I could say her if they had fully realized her plot, I think it would have expanded even more, kind of all the angles mm-hmm. they were going for. And I bet yeah. the book has it. Yeah, probably.
2: Yeah, and she ends up it being. It's hard uh, to read some
0: of these old books that you probably can't even find hardly.
1: All that
2: you can find those. No, it might be point. it might be an interesting read actually and because I of, of the way that, that sometimes movies aren't able to fully encapsulate something. Probably yeah. when they may have been when they got the original six hour cut of this, <laughs> the studio was like, well, no. this is way ahead of its time, <laughs> but we're not gonna bother doing that you know like yeah and instead they wanted to, to cut it down to something a lot more manageable because more even though yeah even though it's probably interesting because they very well might have had that six hour cut as their original vision. Mm -hmm. which was kind of interesting. Uh, I can't imagine somebody like Capra going about that gigantic of a project. It must have been very, very big for him. Yeah. Uh, Because this is definitely not, it happened one night. (laughs) It's very different. All
1: right, well, we should probably wrap this up. So do you have a summary yet?
2: Oh, um, I would say that Lost Horizon is a very different film, especially for its time. It's really given a lot to, I would say, the pre-war mentality and maybe even the mentality of the entire interwar period in which humanity had a lot of questions about how can we make things more perfect and how would we go about doing it. And at the same time, lamenting all of the bad qualities of humanity that were very, very present at the time.
1: It's a surreal trip. And uh, but I don't think you'll be too sorry that you took it.
0: No,
2: great yeah. adventure.
1: And that was uh, our
0: Simulus Selections Brian Churchill. And finally, I guess we'll wrap up with some contact info, of course. All right,
1: uh, our website, if you found this on iTunes, is uh, You can always email us at derilledtrains at gmail.com. Which reminds um, me, I need to check that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, we've been kind of out of the loop for about a month now. And I think podcasting is gonna kind of continue to be on a more of a monthly basis for us. Or Sorry if that pains you, but we've got a number of projects in development and and it's kind of hard to To manage all of them at once and maintain the schedule we used to.
0: Now, if we start getting just thousands of emails, we might have to change our minds.
1: (laughs) Yes, you're welcome to try to to try changes. We'd be quite surprised. Yes, we'll close out here with one more soundtrack for my soundtrack for my new choice. new game. Yes, I'm going back <laughs> to one of my old standbys. There's, old there's so
0: much good music from
1: these games. But. Well, it's true. And, I mean, for supporting characters, I wanted to have something with a character that I knew. So, naturally, I went to Final Fantasy VI. Uh, this is a remix of uh, Setzer's theme. Well, plus Searching for Friends, I guess, is part of this remix, too. But That's basically his theme Yeah, in the pretty, new world. A ruined world. Yeah, pretty much. But, the name of this remix is A Day in the Life of a Gambler. So, yeah, again, very set, sir. Uh This is remixed by JJT. Does that stand for something? I
0: think it's Jiggin' John T. or something like that. Okay. I think he used to call himself that, I think.
1: But this is a very nice uh, piano. It's pretty much all piano in this, isn't it? Piano yeah, very jazzy piano. Yeah, jazzy piano. It reminds me a lot of, like, old school Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers. <laughs> just that, that kind of just soft. hey, life is going to be good sort of feel to it. So
0: close your eyes, slip away to Shangri-La,
1: and uh, enjoy. A day in the life of a gambler. Thanks again for listening. This and, has been... oh, I was going to say, day in the life gambler.
0: Sorry to not win the $500 million uh, lottery. So am I.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. But thanks again for listening to Dural Trains of Thoughts. This has been Nick. This has been Tim. And this has been Brian. Adios. Shangri-La.
2: <laughs> Goodbye. You <can> force me <laughs> with you.